You're listening to the Rewilding Earth Podcast. Rewilding Earth podcast is supported by businesses such as Patagonia, Catula, and Biohabitats, as well as the Whedon Foundation and listeners like you. If you love the work that the Rewilding Institute is doing, please consider donating at rewilding.org. And be sure to sign up for our weekly newsletter while you're there. Chance Catrano directs Fish in the Fields and Restore Point Rays and oversees the development of the Forces of Nature and sponsored programs at Resource Renewal Institute. An award-winning environmentalist, Chance brings a variety of skills from public, private, and nonprofit sustainability experiences. Prior to RRI, Chance was researching food, water, and energy management policy in Vietnam, Morocco, and Bolivia. Chance holds a bachelor's in political science and philosophy from St. Xavier University and a master's of public administration and sustainable management from Presidio Graduate School. Today I talk with Chance about Point Reyes National Seashore and the coalition of efforts to protect and restore a beleaguered national park. So uh, Restore Store Point Reyes is an effort of uh, the Resource Renewal Institute, which is where I, I work uh, direct programs. Restore Point Reyes started around uh, 2015, uh, right after a, a massive die-off of tule elk at Point Reyes National Seashore. And our founder, um, who's a you know, great land conservationist and environmentalist named Huey Johnson, founded the Trust for Public Land, built out the Nature Conservancy. Uh, he's been running a Resource Renewal Institute and tapped me to sort of investigate the die-off of these tule elk. And what we found is that the die-off of tule elk out on the national seashore is just the tip of the iceberg of this systemic issue, which is uh, a third of that national seashore, as uh, past speakers on your program have have brought to attention, um, a third of it is dedicated to uh, agriculture, ranching, and dairying, which is a chronic issue uh, on public lands throughout the West, but is particularly uh, acute and uh, a glaring problem at Point Reyes National Seashore, which is a national park. So the, the actual bar is even higher, of course, for management of those resources. In 2016, we actually filed a lawsuit, the Resource Renewal Institute, and two co-plaintiffs, the Center for Biological Diversity and Western Watersheds Project, in partnership with our council, Advocates for the West, which, is, which are experts on uh, grazing issues and other uh, public lands, uh, public interest uh, issues. Outco- the outcome of that was this new planning process on the national seashore and that we're still in the middle of that process, but that was the, the real development of re- the restore point raise movement was for the first time in 40, 50 years out at that national seashore, the public actually had an opportunity to weigh in on a variety of alternative uses and visions for that national seashore, not just uh, maintaining ranching on roughly a third of this uh, 78,000 acre uh, peninsula, Um, but in addition to that, uh, what what would it look like if you could actually restore these relic native coastal prairies and perennial grasslands and coastal scrublands? And so that's sort of, we're in the process of 
doing this outreach, why I'm, I'm super glad to be on this podcast. Uh, and we're also continuing to work and uh, advocate to politicians, advocate to the Park Service, and really mobilize support for alternative visions that really, you know, herald Point Reyes as the ecological gem uh, that it is and could be if it was restored. You know, uh, I was just talking to Ken Brower um, on the last episode, and and we were talking mainly about issues that are all back on the heels, you know, um, you know, kind of fighting from from behind in terms of just the egregious uh, things that have been happening at Point Reyes and and just saving it from that. And uh, we didn't even get the chance to talk about restoration. It took a while to get through all the things, these outrageous things that these guys want to do um, to develop uh, further. Uh, for the ranching community and their interests. Ken and I have been on the front lines for for years now working on Point Reyes. And like a lot of other national parks, it's beleaguered by underfunding. Uh, not only is public access inhibited by underfunding, but enforcement of leases for uh, the ranchers who actually lease the land out there uh, is pretty much non-existent. Um, there is, there's a lot of rubber stamping going on out there. And so to date, what we found in, in the worst of drought conditions, which are only going to get uh, more severe with uh, the climate crisis, uh, we found during drought conditions out at the seashore over the last decade, overgrazing uh, has contributed to some of the most severe uh, hydrological issues, including soil erosion and very severe nutrient cycling issues with uh, pollution into waterways. The, the water out at Point Reyes National Seashore around those ranches is uh, some of the worst water quality in the state of California. Wow. Uh, and, you're, and it's in a national seashore and it's in its water that drains uh, into, you know, habitat for endangered salmon, steelhead, trout, uh, in addition to, the only protected marine wilderness on the West Coast, which is which used to be farmed for oysters, and they actually uh, removed the oyster farming, canceled the permit. It was a big issue uh, about you know in the early 20, 2010s. You know now that's a marine protected wilderness, and there are still issues with fecal coliform, with uh, nutrient loading from manure runoff from these dairy operations and from the ranches out there. So there's, there's some glaring issues, but there's, that means that there's plenty of opportunity to uh, mitigate that and restore the seashore. Okay. So here's my naivete <laughs> kicking in thinking that, you know, and I wonder how many um, maybe listeners are thinking, duh, Jack, it's grazing. But I just had this fantasy since it was happening on national park land that there was there were stringent more stringent standards being applied to what the ranchers could and could not do. These finer details that you and Ken have been exposing to me are really quite surprising. Like it sounds like it's exactly the same kind of grazing and runoff operation as it would be anywhere else in the country minus a national park. I can't believe that we're having this discussion sometimes um, and we're still talking about a national park. Yeah. And it's, it's part of the, the, the cultural ethos of, you know, cowboys and ranching in the West, but it's also 
uh, more nuanced at Point Reyes because the ranchers did agree to sell their land and participate in a, a leaseback model, which the National Park Service was doing in the 60s, as opposed to, you know, eminent domain takeover of, of property from private uh, landowners. But the, the issue that we run into is over time, there's been more emphasis on cultural resources at Point Reyes National Seashore. And so not only do they have uh, this 30,000 acres designated as like a for ranching, there's about 20, roughly 24,000, 26,000 acres that's in this pastoral zone, right in the center of Point Reyes National Seashore. And as a result, the standards that they, they hold these ranchers to aren't standards that are developed by the Department of the Interior. Really what we found is they're standards from the USDA. And so this isn't, this isn't land that's being managed for the conservation, preservation, and restoration of ecological values and metric, but it's being managed as rangeland for its productivity uh, as an agricultural resource that just happens to be within a national park unit that's managed by a completely different department uh, within the executive branch. That's where we run into some issues is in the last you know, five or six years, uh, they decided that all of these ranches, um, they put them on the National Historic Register uh, for this being a historic ranching district. And so you have the, the fact that they're managing it as a rangeland, the fact that it's part of this this historic registrar of uh, properties. And so you need, like the Park Service feels compelled to manage the, the cultural resources and hold them to uh, like equal to the natural resources. Even though over the last 20 years, we found that those two things are not compatible. And it was said in congressional testimony from the ranchers that dairying on a, in a national park is not compatible with the values of a national park, with holding these resources unimpaired for future generations. And that's sort of the quagmire that we're in right now is the politicians, the special interest groups say, we need to protect these cultural resources. The only way that these, these barns and historic ranches can, can be truly cultural, cultural resources is if they're still working, but it's being done at the expense of native Thule elk it's being done at the expense of endangered salmon, endangered snowy plover populations that are being decimated by the abundance of ravens out at these ranches that then, you know, crowd out every other native bird in the national seashore. And there's actually silage mowing that's being done that's affecting ground nesting birds as well. So the, the seashore is a is a really dynamic place and it's it's a there are a lot of confounding variables that that are affecting the our ability to to really restore the ecosystem out there but it's it's that like you say it's crazy that we're even talking about it the way we're talking about it with just manure runoff beaches being closed elk being killed it's one thing outside of a national park or it's one thing on private land but it's a it's a completely a different thing when you have this happening in a, in a national park sandwiched between two wilderness areas. You're listening to the Rewilding Earth podcast. 
Did you know we also publish insightful and inspirational content from leading rewilding scholars, poets, artists, and organizers from around the world? You can visit rewilding.org and sign up for our weekly digest to receive brilliant, fresh insights on everything rewilding. You'll find over a decade of articles and news from the front lines of wildlands protection and all kinds of restoration efforts. Check us out at rewilding.org and don't forget to share it with friends. I'm just refreshing my memory of how it looks from above. I'm on Google Maps. I'm scrolling just ever so slightly down to see San Francisco. And I'm thinking the absurdity of it is that you've got people who have educations and uh, interests, urban interests. I fear a lot of them got most of their idea of farming and things from Sesame Street when they grew up. And they think that that's what's happening when you, when you mention that. And the cultural thing, cultural is just a super hot keyword. And if, you know, some people just tune out right after you say that. Well, of course, you can have whatever you want. They don't even know what you're saying, what you're talking about or anything, just cultural. Oh, cultural? I'm culturally sensitive, you know, whatever, as they're drinking their coffees and going to Google. I cannot believe that it's just those <laughs> right yeah. freaking there next to a bastion of education, higher learning uh, uh, tech, these little teeny tiny interests can hold all, all this up, can take a national park hostage and just wrap it up in a whole bow of things that they know plays super well to a public that's not going to spend very much time thinking more deeply about it. They're saying they're preserving all these things that they use and it's all BS, right? It's complete and total BS and they know it and they know we know it and they're smiling the whole time knowing they still have control uh, in places like Point Reyes where they should not have ever been um, past the 60s when they did that stupid leaseback thing. That should have been the end of it. And today should be the beginning of the absolute end of crap like this. Yeah, li literally crap like this. Literally. Yeah. <laughs> literally the amount of crap out there that's produced by the cows. It seems so innocuous and, and harmless to have, you know, th these ranchers out in this bucolic pastoral setting and, uh, you know, everything looks so green and uh, beautiful when it's, you know, in the middle, in the, in the spring, like right now. But the, the scary thing is that these ranching interests are putting the same pressure as the Bundys, even though, you know, it seems like they're characterized completely different. But these ranchers, during that Drake's Bay oyster battle that I mentioned earlier with the removing the lease for oyster farming in a potential wilderness area that is now a wilderness area, um, those ranchers were receiving Koch, Koch brothers money to fight against the National Park Service um, for private interests on public lands. And in addition to that, just recently during this planning process, we actually had ranchers out there, some of the same ranchers, going and meeting with Donald Trump. and and being in a press setting with Donald Trump where they were able to give their spiel about, you know, that the oyster farm was removed by bureaucrats, by environmentalists, and now they're coming after the ranchers out there. And, and saying this with Donald Trump there, saying this to the executive branch in hopes that, you know, this could curry some favor when and if there's ever an opportunity to say, look at these environmental impacts. And fortunately, we're in that phase where the Park Service, for the first time ever, has released an environmental impact statement where you can actually see 
the differences between what it would look like to have expanded ranching, which is being proposed and which is the, the park service, that's their preferred alternative for the future of the seashore. And then even the no, the no action alternative, what it looks like right now, and then what would, it, what it would look like to have reduced ranching, no dairying, no ranching or dairying at all. And you can see all the different environmental impacts, the reduction in greenhouse gases, the reduction in, in soil erosion and, and the improvement in hydrological cycling, the, the, the opportunity to restore our relic native coastal prairies and perennial grasslands out at the national seashore, which could actually sequester carbon uh, in a much more effective and a much more holistic way than the carbon farming that they're, they're peddling and saying, you know, if we have the cows out here, we'll be able to fight climate change. Totally negating the fact that 68%, 70% of the greenhouse gas emissions from that national seashore come from the cattle operations. It is wild that we're so close to to an urban center with all these fantastic universities, with all of these highly educated people, and it seems so innocuous because you can get your local organic uh, ice cream, and it, and it makes you feel good that you're getting it locally, and there is something to be said about local food production as a part of the the, the path to sustainability and resilient communities, but in you know that's a that's a topic for another conversation where you get your where you get your meat or where you get you know if you eat meat or where you get um you know your food but i don't want my my food from a national park you know i don't want my i, I wouldn't want a hamburger from a national park we shouldn't be having a discussion about getting all of our food from from national parks at the expense of bobcats coyotes wolf you know weasels wolverines or badgers or otters or elk and meanwhile right outside the national seashore dairies and ranches are closing left and right yeah, and people are eating it's, less of it yeah they're, they're not doing dairy dairies and, and, are going bankrupt giant dairies here in the midwest deans and others the reason that they're going bankrupt and going under is the demand for their product has gone through the floor people who don't yep. even care about issues are finding the alternatives to cow's milk more desirable for their health and stuff I mean, it's not even our closest friends who are putting the dent in it, nor is it usually ever. It takes a bigger movement. One of our biggest challenges is just getting the message out. Once people know what's going on in a national seashore and, and they understand, they go to restorepointraise.org, for instance, and they see the 20 years of data that shows just how damaging these operations are out there. And the fact that they're just out there to begin with you know, it, it immediately makes people question, like, why are we doing this? And this isn't, you know, this has been held as like this local issue, but really it, sh it needs to be elevated. It's a national issue yeah. because this is a national seashore. And like, this is the only national park where you can go see native Thule elk that were brought back from the brink of extinction, one of the greatest restoration stories in California, and yet we're having uh, our congressmen, we're having the park service uh, being pressured by the ranchers to actually kill and, and limit the population of those tule elk so that they don't eat the grass that's being leased to the ranchers. This is, uh, this is the decade where we really need to step up. I mean, you know, every day things are being gutted by executive branch in this administration. But the United Nations just last year said that 
the 2020s, that's the decade of ecosystem restoration, the decade of natural, natural climate solutions. And, and that's a huge piece of the puzzle for figuring out how we are going to get through the climate crisis and mitigate the worst of, of climatic change. Yeah. And we need to really be in solidarity at each step all across the country and across the world because these are extremely biodiverse wild protected areas and if we allow the little whittling away at each of these public lands across the country what we end up with is mediocrity you know because all these these little whittling aways they're all cumulative and you have ranchers out there calling for they want the 1850s environmental baseline of what they should be able to do out there. Ken, Ken probably brought it up. The, they want pigs. They want goats. They want artichoke row crops. They want uh, free-range chickens. And there are already so many impacts to this protected land, this public land, that any more of these, you know, these gimmies, it's just going to continue to whittle away at what makes Point Reyes so special. The last thing we need is to is to feel like the things we feel are already protected are not protected. National parks are supposed to be part of that thing where we don't have to worry. It's already a massive project to to bring up by twenty three percent or more the number of protected uh, land lands in North America. That's kind of our job. That's kind of because we're uh, Dave uh, Foreman is revamping, uh, rewilding North America right now. Um, the entire board and staff is all hands on deck. Um, maps are a part of that. All the areas that he studied back in the early 2000s when he released the book, uh, the first edition, everything's being updated, revamped with um, new lines on new maps of what needs to be done to actually get to 50%. Of course, we take an accounting of all of the things that are protected now. National parks are part of that percentage. If, uh, if it's a national park, it contributes toward that 50%. And if a national park is being abused like this, it's only on paper, only, only so much as the undisturbed parts of that park can contribute to that 50%. It's not a complete protection unless it's really, truly a national park like like the rest of the national parks in the country. You're not supposed to have a campaign within your organization dedicated to this issue. It came up because it had to, right? That, that's exactly right. This is not, this, our organization had never been involved in a lawsuit prior to Point Reyes, but the Park Service was going forward with this expansion of, of uses and the extension of these leases despite the issues of mismanagement, despite the fact that they hadn't updated their general management plan in nearly 40 years. And so they were, you know, heading into a future that seems much more stressful get for, for that, that resource uh, and Point Reyes National Seashore. And they were going into it with a plan from the 80s, you know, and they were saying, well, let's just keep moving forward. Like, we don't need an 18... 50s environmental baseline. We don't need a 1980s environmental baseline. We need to be looking 50, 100 years in the future and projecting and saying, how are we going to manage this unimpaired for future generations, given everything that we're projecting? And so we had to jump in and we had to take a stand. And it takes resources away from other restoration projects that could be happening and some of that rewilding work that needs to be done on other parcels. 
And so we're, now we're backtracking, essentially. What is it that people can be doing to help out with this? One of the key things is just letting other people know about this, you know, taking people to restorepointraise.org uh, or forelk.org or the shame of point raise, just typing the shame of point raise into YouTube and watching some of these films that uh, we've been developing in partnership with other environmentalists that care about this. And we're just continuing to mobilize because we want to lean on constituents when the time is right. If you're tapped into some of these online resources and you subscribe to the newsletter, this plan is going to come out this spring. And we don't know what it's going to look like, but we know that the Park Service is favoring the agricultural interests and expanding those interests and giving them 20-year leases, which is like unheard of in a national park for any contractor or, or, or leasee or anything like that. At that point in time, we have to rally the troops and put the pressure on. And, and so that's, that's the big thing right now is just becoming aware spread, and spreading that awareness and, and sort of staying in, in tune. Say that the uh, planning process goes in whatever direction that it does, whatever ends up happening, what is the solution federally uh, when we have an administration? Because I noticed that you're not talking about the administration much here. Um, I wonder why. But once we have a, an administration that's, you know, got sanity at its core uh, again, then what would be the federal remedy for this? The most practical of solutions would, would be for the administration to, you know, send signals in addition to Congress sending signals to the National Park Service, uh, not only the director, but also the Pacific Regional Director, saying this needs to sunset. Like there, there needs to be a sunset clause in here. And that's probably the most practical way to do it instead of just, you know, being like, you know, tomorrow you're out. Like all of you and all your, you and all your 6,000 cows, you're out. Like I, many of us would like to see the retirement of this and the restoration of this. But in practical terms, I think just signing in that sunset clause and saying, you know, at the end of five years, figure out how to really make sure that there's attrition and make sure that as those ranches come offline, those restoration projects come online. I think that's going to be the big piece. But the, the state senator, Diane Feinstein, uh, our local congressman, Jared Huffman, they're both super supportive of extending the, the ranching, um, the leases, as well as what they're allowed to do with those leases. That's why I'm saying like putting pressure on those officials from constituents when the time is right. Overwhelmingly, I believe the public is hanging in saying we want to see the restoration of this seashore. Like this is a national park. It's sort of a, a multi-pronged approach. Um, and I'm not holding my breath, breath that the uh, administration is going to make this a top priority right away. But if we are loud enough and if we are organized enough, I think we, we will be successful and we will see a sunset clause um, or the reduction and eventual sunset of ranching out there. The most important tool you have is your own informed energy. So don't, don't burn out putting out all these, fi putting out all these fires. Uh, that it's something my mentor, Huey Johnson, who runs uh, RRI has told me. And in addition to that, the big tool from him, the big tool from other public lands advocates and, and huge mentors in my life, like Michael Frome and like Joseph Sachs, is really persistence is the only tool we have. 
we have to we have to keep that that fire kindling inside. We have to keep hope, and we have to be persistent. And eventually, we'll we'll out we'll outlive the bastards, as uh, Edward Abbey said. Very sage advice. Thank you, Chance, for being around here today um, and, and, and being around for us in the future because this is a, a developing issue and I'd like to hear more uh, as soon as you hear about it. Um, any, any big developments or anything, feel free to come back anytime to Rewilding Earth. Thank you very much. I, I appreciate being here and I'm, I'm happy that there's a resource for folks in the, in the podcast realm. Thanks for listening to the Rewilding Earth podcast. We do what we do because of you. This podcast is supported by listeners like you who long to live in a wilder world. Please consider donating at rewilding.org and subscribe to our weekly news and article digest while you're there. To go the extra mile, you can follow and share Rewilding Earth on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Bonus points for sharing this podcast with your friends. To listen to past episodes, go to rewilding.org slash pod. That's rewilding.org slash pod.